Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. Ernest Shackleton was a pioneering British polar explorer. He explored the South Pole particularly, and his attempts through his life in the early 20th century were largely met with disappointment, and so his career, for the most part, was overshadowed by fellow British explorer Robert Scott and, and uh, Norwegian expo- explorer Ruald Amundsen. But Shackleton became cemented in history for another reason, for particularly his bravery. As one of his contemporaries wrote after he had passed away, saying that if he were to take any expedition, he said, I should take Scott for scientific method, Amundsen for speed and efficiency. But when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, Get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton was uh, making an attempt to be the first person to ever reach the South Pole, but he was beat by Amundsen, and so he diverted his efforts to putting together a team who would be the first to cross the Antarctic from one sea to the next. He led an expedition to do this in 1914 called the Trans-Antarctic Expedition, but in his attempts to reach the, the coast to begin the trek, his ship became stuck in ice and was slowly crushed by the ice around it. His men abandoned ship and made camp on a drifting iceberg, which floated in the sea for five months as it slowly disintegrated in warmer in warmer waters, until finally they launched their few little lifeboats out into the stormy seas until they reached a barren rock known as Elephant Island. Knowing they couldn't survive there at long, there was no flora, no fauna, nothing to eat. There were a few seals that they could capture from time to time. Ernest Shackleton took five others and launched out into a 20-foot boat for an 830-mile, more than two-week journey trying to reach the island of South Georgia, which was a whaling, uh, uh, I guess, station in those days. Twenty-two men remained on this barren rock, waiting for Shackleton to return hunkered down under the command of a man named Frank Wilde. Weeks turned into a month, and then another month, and another month, and another month. And they remained there watching and waiting and watching and waiting. Until finally, after four and a half months, they saw on the horizon Shackleton finally returning with a boat. For the rescue. After the rescue, Frank Wilde was asked, How did they manage for so long? How did they survive for so long? How did they hold on to hope for so long that they would be rescued when it seemed to take so much longer than they first anticipated? And his answer was that every morning he would get up personally, he would pack up all of his things, all of his belongings. And with a cheerful voice and anticipation, he would say to his men, Roll up your sleeping bags, boys. The boss 
may come today. That's kind of a sort of microcosm, if you will, of the kind of attitude that Paul admonishes, if you will, you and I to live in each day as we go through our life, waiting on the return of our Savior. You may remember in Acts 1, when Jesus and his disciples were on the Mount of Olives, this was sort of the posture of the church as it began at its very beginning. They, were, they, they sort of launched with this sense of watching and looking and waiting. We're told that, that they were with Jesus on the Mount of Olives when he was taken up from them into the sky and, and eventually disappeared into the clouds. And an angel came and appeared to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. We, um, we're never told when that will take place. But we're constantly told throughout the pages of scripture to be ready for it. To hold it in our hearts with anticipation. Ever since that time, there Return of Christ has been then a kind of object of thought and an object of study, certainly an object of hope and expectations for Christians throughout the the centuries. It has been something that has generated not only a lot of interest, but a lot of questions. And one of the places we see that is right here in the book of Thessalonians in chapter 4 from verse 13 through 18, the end of the chapter our passage for this morning. We've been studying this book for the last several months and kind of working our way through all of the great pastoral wisdom. And this passage comes to us in a similar fashion. It's written, we might say, pastorally. Its aim, in other words, is not just raw theology. Its aim is to minister to this group of people who apparently had questions This is one of the earliest books that was written in the New Testament, somewhere around 50 AD, probably the earliest letter we have from the Apostle Paul. So very early still in the life of the church, but we find already that there was at least a curiosity, um, if not burning questions in the minds of Christians when it came to the end times or the return of Christ, or we might say His appearing. And Paul writes in this section, verses 13 through 18, partly to answer some of those questions and particularly to provide hope for these believers who had apparently become unsettled, for whatever reason, burdened with the idea of the death of their loved ones. And this is what Paul writes to them, beginning in verse 13. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. 
Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, this is a new subject, really, for the Apostle Paul. This is not something that has, we would say, any direct connection to what he's just said in verses 12 and proceeding, where he was kind of talking to us about what a life looks like that pleases God. This is sort of introduced by one of the familiar phrases from the Apostle Paul, we don't want you to be uninformed. He uses that in some of his other books to introduce new topics. And he is apparently writing to them because he senses that they are uninformed in some way. We don't know how he knew about this. We don't know if they wrote him a letter with certain questions or we don't know if... if, uh, you know, they heard, uh, or Timothy had heard something about their, their, their distress and brought report back to Paul or whatever it might be. But there was some level of confusion in their minds regarding those who had already died. And they were upset. Now, it would have been, it would have been, I guess you might say, understandable to some extent. In their culture, they were surrounded by a society who had such a dim view of death to begin with, maybe they, maybe they were struggling to differentiate between what the culture around them thought about death and what the Scripture actually taught and what was actually to take place. Because the pagan culture, the Greek culture, was particularly gloomy when it came to the issue of death. And there wasn't like a single dominant idea in the culture. There were a number of competing philosophies and religions of the day. But for the most part, death was looked at with, with dim view. There was some hope, you might say, for a few who were considered heroic or, or in some cases even related to the gods, that they would somehow pass into the Elysian fields of the gods And maybe for the very worst people, there would be some sort of awful punishment. But for the rest of the people, there was just this sort of undescribed passage across the river Styx into some some, uh, place known as Hades. And as a matter of fact, when when people would die, they would place uh, trinkets and sometimes little emblems of, of a boat Or sometimes they would place coins on their eye sockets in order to pay the boatmen to get them across the river because it was considered to be at least some place where there would be some level of rest and there wouldn't be a a restlessness about them. And so this this was a general idea that death brought some sort of passage, but the passage was difficult. The passage was uncertain. The passage needed some sort of help from the, the world of the living to get you there. And even beyond that, when, when there was some doubt in people's minds, we know from the writings of people like Justin Martyr that, that pagans would go out to the tombs and they would perform what he called magic or necromancy or all kinds of things, not only to communicate with the dead, but even sometimes to, to help release them because the idea was that they were, they were somehow trapped in that tomb or, or nearby as, as a spirit just wandering closely around their tomb. So all of this was 
sort of popular in the mindset, and perhaps that was what was taking place. But even beyond that, there wasn't much hope. Even if they had found a way to navigate through all the obstacles of passage to the afterlife, even then there was not much to set your hope in. So many of the philosophers wrote, for example, Theocritus wrote in the 3rd century B.C., hopes are among the living, but the dead, they die without hope. Or catalysts, suns may set and rise again, but we, once our brief light goes out, we sleep in endless night. Or Lucretius says, no one awakes and arises who has once been overcome by the chill of the end of life. This was just the sort of the popular view. It was, it was uh, you might say, dark, hopeless, uh, gloomy in every way. And so this was the world of the Thessalonians. And, and when Paul came to preach the gospel and spoke of the return of Christ and spoke of even a resurrection, this was something that was brand new to them. No idea that, that someone would ever experience the afterlife in that kind of joy, much less experience in a body, a resurrected body. And the contrast would have been clear and full of hope for them. But for some reason, they were struggling with this idea and perhaps, as I said, beginning to waver in the, in the face of popular ideas of the difficulty of transitioning to that other life. We don't really know what it was, but what, for whatever reason, Paul feels compelled to write to them to clear up any kind of misunderstanding. And it's clear as well that his goal is to comfort them in the face of their lost loved ones, so that they wouldn't, as he says, have sorrow like the others. Paul, of course, would have understood that uh, sorrow was a natural thing. He knew that when someone dies, you're going to have grief and you're going to have pain. We see that even in the Apostle Paul's life. He says in Epaphroditus, about Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, that he was close to the point of death, but God had mercy on him so that, Paul says, I wouldn't have sorrow upon sorrow. So just the thought of losing Epaphroditus brought Paul enormous amounts of sorrow. We see Jesus weeping whenever he sees or hears of Lazarus' death in John chapter 11. That, those are just natural reactions. What Paul's talking about here is not the it's sort of the sort of stoical eradication of all feeling when someone dies. What he's talking about is a level of sorrow and grief, which he says is as the others grieve who have no hope. In other words, an inappropriate level of sorrow, a kind of grief that overwhelms you, or in some cases might even paralyze you. An emptiness that we we might say, can't be filled, a pit that you fall into from which you never climb out of because of grief. That's what he's trying to avoid with them. And so he's telling us as Christians that we cannot face the loss of loved ones this way. We cannot face death with that kind of hopelessness. And so in this passage, what he aims to do is give not only the Thessalonians, but in some sense to give us an explanation of why we face the loss of loved ones differently than those of the world and 
and how we can view it with the hope of the appearing of our Savior with joy and with comfort. And we could group what Paul has to say here really into four different factors that affect our view of death. Four factors that describe why Christians face death differently than the world. And the first one in verse 14 is this, that we face the loss of loved ones differently because they, or we, I should say as Christians, remember the pattern of Christ's resurrection. This is the main reason why, in fact, we think about death differently because we remember the pattern of Christ's resurrection. This is what Paul says. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he begins where we should all begin with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is, is the foundation of Christianity. And, and he lays out this premise, since we believe this, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. This is the foundation of, of being a Christian to begin with. It is, it is the entry point. He can say it assuming that it's true because he understood that, that to be a believer, the fundamental thing that you must believe, the fundamental thing that you have to believe is that Jesus rose from the grave. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be a Christian. And so he just says, this is what we believe. We obviously believe this. And and since this is our belief, then we can approach death differently because we know that God will bring with him those who are falling asleep. This is the foundational belief of Christianity because it addresses or answers the foundational problem of all humanity, which is death, or you might even say sin and death. And just to explain that a little bit, death wasn't always a reality for humanity. God created man and woman, male and female. He created Adam and Eve in the garden, not as creatures who were subject to death. He created them, you might say, to live forever. But mankind was not faithful to God. Mankind sinned and it brought death into the world. And the, the penalty of this, uh, of this sin was that death. As Paul says in Romans five twelve, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so you and I are in a world subject to death because we sin and because Adam sinned and introduced that into the world. We all were born now into this kind of corruption. And so from the time of Adam, death has reigned over every man and woman and you face it and I face it and we all face it. But there was one person who, who was never conquered by death. And that was Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead, which is the central core belief of Christianity. And by rising from the dead, he made one emphatic point that sin, 
which causes death for all of the rest of us, did not cause death for him. In other words, sin didn't reign over him because death didn't reign over him. Or you could reverse it. If sin had reigned over Christ, then death would have reigned over Christ. Or if death reigned over Christ, then it would have indicated that sin reigned over Christ. And yet none of that is true. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Yet Christ has been raised, he says. So the resurrection of Christ is at the very core. This is where it all begins. Even though it is almost completely ignored by so many in Christianity, maybe with the exception of Easter each year, all the focus ends up being on the cross, on the crucifixion, or we might say it ends up being on justification, or we might even say on the legal and forensic matters of of our relationship to the law and how we have broken the law and the penalty for sin and all those other things, which are obviously important issues. But to put all of your focus on those forensic issues and then to ignore the resurrection would like, uh, be like putting all of your focus on the argument in a court case, but not really caring about the final judicial decree. The decree, which is sort of the legal document that makes the ruling of the court binding. Uh, for whoever it is awarded to. It makes it binding. It's the thing that ultimately makes the difference. And so if you're sued for something or you're accused of something and, and I want to know your status, you can sit there and you can kind of tell me about all the evidence and all the other, other things. But if you don't have a decree from, from a court declaring what the judgment is, then it's absolutely useless. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the judicial decree of your forgiveness. This is what Paul is basically saying in Romans 4.25 when he talks about Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This This is the decree that makes your justification valid. It's a proof that death no longer reigns because it's the proof that sin no longer reigns. That there's no more death, there's no more condemnation, there's no more loss for us who are in Christ. And so the resurrection then becomes the cornerstone of everything we think about Christianity, about the future, about hope and all those things. And it also becomes the paradigm. The paradigm for you and I who have been forgiven sin and escaped the penalty of death, we've given the promise that there awaits us that same kind of victory. And so Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also comes resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. 
And so here, Paul, basically, what he's doing is he's just giving a one-statement, succinct summary of all that doctrine. And he just simply says, look, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the resurrection is intended to cement our faith and cement our belief and cement our hope that we will be raised from the dead. It's first fruits. It's kind of a down payment to that end. The guarantee that you and I will experience the same thing. So with that sort of first factor laid down, describing why we face death differently, Paul then sort of elaborates on that. And he turns in verse 15 to a second factor. We face death differently because we recognize the plan for Christ's appearance. We face it differently because we recognize the plan for his appearance. And this really is the bulk of the passage. It runs from verse 15 all the way down to verse 17. And it makes up uh, really the, the, uh, the essence of what Paul is saying here because this was apparently where most of the mystery was for them. This was something they did not fully understand and apparently had never even been taught. Paul says back in verse 13, he doesn't want them to be uninformed about all of this. He would have told them about the resurrection, but this is something that, that was probably brand new for them. And this is different. For example, if you look down to chapter 5, verse 1, when he goes on talking to them about other eschatological matters, other matters about the return of Christ, he tells them that they have no need for anyone to write to them. In other words, he's going to move on to material that they already know. But in this particular area, they were still somewhat ignorant, uninformed. And so he's introducing to them this new information And he wants them to know in verse 15 that what he's about to say to them is information that he has received by a word from the Lord. So what he says, we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who've fallen asleep. Now, we don't know where Paul got this word. It wasn't something that is recorded in any of the four Gospels. They hadn't even been written at this point in history, so Paul couldn't have read them in the Gospels. They were possibly something that Jesus taught and had been passed on by the disciples who were out at this point preaching in different venues, and and Paul could have sat under their teaching, and they would have... They would have expounded on the entire life of Christ and and no doubt include things that aren't even included in our Gospels. And so possibly this is something that he heard from one of the apostles that Jesus had, had said. But that would be challenging then to know why some so, some some so helpful piece of knowledge would have been left out of the Gospels altogether. Why none of the apostles would have felt it worthy to put this into the scripture. So this is probably not something that originates from them. It probably is something that came later, a word from the Lord that came later after he had already ascended into heaven and would have been delivered by one of the prophets, maybe someone like Agabus or possibly even one of Paul's 
companions. We know during this period of time that prophets were active in the church before the the scripture had been written, before the New Testament had been delivered. We're told that God gave prophets to the church in order to give it guidance. In fact, very specifically in 1 Corinthians 14, they were to give words of edification and encouragement and consolation, which is exactly what this kind of language is. It's intended to bring comfort to believers. Paul's comforting them with it. And so this was most likely some, some um, other word that came by means of prophetic revelation. And now Paul wants to pass it along to them to give them this insight. And he wants them to know it came not from him, not from his piecing together, not from his speculation, but from the one who knows all things, precisely how they were going to happen. And what was this word that came from the Lord? What did he reveal? He revealed that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now that's a pretty detailed revelation. Unfortunately, it isn't detailed enough for many people who want to go beyond this and try to speculate about so many details that aren't even given for us here. But we want to avoid that. And we want to just understand what does God say to us in this word, in this revelation. Well, basically, what he's giving to us is a sequence of events, a kind of order of things that will happen. And just to note, all of this, everything that Paul has here, is going to happen suddenly. If you just go down just a couple of verses in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, Paul will say to them, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. They already knew this. Paul didn't have to necessarily clarify this because this was, this was common knowledge among them. And so Paul is saying all this with the assumption that they would understand that all of this is going to happen, we, we would say, imminently. Some people refer to it as the doctrine of imminence or the doctrine of nearness. This idea that everything that's going to happen at the appearing of Christ is going to happen at any moment. In other words, there are no divinely revealed prophecies that still remain to be fulfilled before any of this stuff takes place. There are no prerequisites, which is generally by the way why we believe that all of this will take place prior to all of the remaining prophecies of the New Testament, including those about a tribulation and the coming judgment on the world. We'll look at that even more next week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So here, as Paul says, they already knew about the coming of the Lord, but they already knew that it was going to come suddenly, but they didn't know the, the precise sequence the particular details 
which is what the Lord reveals here. And the summary is really given to us there in verse 15. We who are alive and who are left until the coming will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That's the gist of it. That's the big idea. When it comes to the resurrection, everyone who is in Christ, both the living and the dead, will participate. No one will be left out. There will be no one who has died who will fail to make this transition, if you will. No distinct advantage for those who are living over those who are dead or any of that. And then Paul explains it in verse 16 with a little description of the particulars, the exact sequence of how all of this will unfold when the Lord appears. And it's obviously going to begin in a boisterous fashion. Or what we might say, just a loud, booming, clamorous, intense way. Because he describes it with these these sounds. He says, first of all, the Lord will descend from heaven with with a cry of command. We don't know who gives the cry, but we know there's going to be a cry, which is a military word for someone who called out directions on a battlefield. It's used of of an officer in charge of rowers in the belly of a boat shouting commands to maneuver the boat during during warfare, having to call out over all of the clanging and sounds around them and the clashing of the waves. He had to raise his voice above all of those sounds. And so again, the chief idea is that it is loud. And then he says there will be a voice of an archangel, which isn't really described any further, but John describes hearing the voice of a regular angel in the book of Revelation, and he says it was like the sound of a trumpet, which along with the cymbal was basically the loudest instrument available to man. In fact, it was the loudest noise that a human being could produce in that day. Which takes us really to the next sound when Paul mentions that there will also be the sound of the trumpet of God. Again, a very loud sound. Some people have wondered whether all three of these phrases are basically describing one single really, really loud sound. I guess really it doesn't make a lot of difference as long as you get the point. It's going to be loud unmistakably loud, piercing, thundering, tumultuous in your ears. And you will definitely stop whatever you're doing, or if you are asleep, you will definitely wake up and immediately pay attention. My wife may wonder about that sometimes with me. But it'll wake even me up. I'm a heavy sleeper sometimes. You guys have that, you know? Or as you wake up in the morning and she's like, did you hear all that commotion last night? The kids getting up and running all of this? Like, nope, nope. Didn't hear a thing. But I'll hear this. I will hear this. It's going to be loud. And whether or not we have the faculties to process whatever is going on at that very moment really isn't even dealt with. 
I can imagine it will be immediately disorienting and we'll probably go through a whole range of emotions from fear to bewilderment to realization of what's happening to an overwhelming joy at that moment. Or whatever it is, we'll clearly hear it and it will be inescapable for us. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean everyone around us will hear it. Again, the scripture doesn't address that. It could be similar to what happened to Paul in Acts chapter 9 when the Lord spoke to him out of heaven and we're told that the soldiers who were standing right by him didn't hear anything. So, so this could be something that's reserved only for believers. But the point is, you will know. You will most certainly be startled when it happens. At that point, Paul says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Meaning, obviously, that this isn't something that's instantaneous. It might be something that happens over a relatively short period of time, but, but the, the events of the appearing of Christ are not simultaneous. Some people have read 1 Corinthians 15 and gathered that because Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now they read that reference to the twinkling of an eye and, and, and they assume that all of this is happening all just instantaneously. Well, the twinkling of an eye could very well be referencing the instantaneous change for those. In fact, I think it's probably referencing the instantaneous change for those of us who haven't passed, if you will, from, living, from, from, from life to bodily death. That, that we who are alive, our bodies, when Christ returns, will instantly be transformed. Not necessarily a reference to the length of time that it takes for all these events to, to occur. But Paul makes the point here that in this sequence, no matter how long it is, in this sequence, the priority will be for the dead in Christ. We don't know if their change will be instantaneous, but God will reconstitute their bodies in a glorified fashion. That they will rise again in glorified bodies like the glorified body of Christ, like the body that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians, bodies full of glory and honor and power. He describes as true flesh and blood in a way that is imperishable. True bodies, but imperishable bodies. So the first thing that happens after these loud, loud sounds is that the dead are given their bodies and they come out of their graves. And then, Paul says next, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so the point is, Only after the dead have been raised up in their reconstituted bodies will we ascend into the air, just like Jesus ascended into the air, and we will meet the Lord in the air. And this 
word uh, we will be caught up is where we get our familiar phrase rapture. It comes from the Latin version rapturo and uh, has been forever etched now into the minds of believers as they study this issue again and again and again. It basically just is the idea of snatching. Like Jesus says in John chapter chapter uh, 10, where he says, uh, no one, excuse me, John chapter 6, where no one will be able to snatch believers out of his hand. It really just has the idea of suddenness or quickness. No one... No one is uh, going to snatch us out of his hands, but we are going to be snatched into his presence in a sudden and quick fashion. And we will go and we will meet the Lord in the air. Now, of course, Paul doesn't explicitly tell us here what happens after we meet the Lord in the air. Or more specifically, he doesn't tell us where we go once we meet the Lord in the air. Some people have tried to find uh, that answer by just looking at the individual word meet. And they've noted that it is a word that was sometimes used of a delegation of people who go outside of a city to meet a dignitary and then to escort him back into their city. But the word doesn't carry that meaning in and of itself. In fact, when it's used that way, it's always either combined with some other word, such as they went out to meet Caesar in order to escort him back to the city, or just in general tied in the context, making it clear that that's what they're doing. The word itself just simply refers to a group meeting, the gathering of a group. So there's nothing in the language itself that tells us exactly what happens afterward. If you want to answer that question, you'll have to go to other places uh, of the Scripture. But it seems, at least to me, that if coming back triumphantly to the earth was something that's going to happen, Paul would have made that a point of emphasis not just meeting the Lord in the air. It seems to me that if uh, coming back to the earth was something that was a part of this sequence, then leaving the dead behind wouldn't have been such a point of grief for these believers. Uh, the, The idea that seemed to upset them so much would be that they were the ones who were going to be transported into some other realm and the dead were somehow not going to be there. Paul doesn't talk really about any of that. Probably understood um, that they understood that when we meet the Lord that we were going to meet Him and that a number of other prophecies would need to be fulfilled on the earth for the day of judgment. Some of those we'll talk about, as I said last week. This was, in fact, what Paul was most likely referring to back in chapter 1, verse 10, when he describes believers. He says in, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he describes believers as those who wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there's a clear idea of wrath 
that was coming on the earth, as he describes in chapter 5, but something from which you and I will be spared. So Paul had obviously taught them about this and probably, as I said, didn't think it necessary to spell it out at this point, or he thought it would not have been a question in their mind that needed to be addressed. But he wanted them to have this clear understanding of what would happen before that. A clear recognition of the plan of the Lord. With the main point being this, that every person who is in Christ will be united together with Him. Every person who died in Christ, every person who remains living and is in Christ, every one of them, because of the resurrection of Christ, are guaranteed their own resurrection to meet the Lord at His appearing. Well, Paul isn't done because he briefly names a third factor that describes why Christians face death differently than those in the world. And we only really have time to mention this one and the fourth one, but they're pretty self-explanatory and pretty significant. But we would say, thirdly, we face the loss of loved ones differently than the world because in verse 17, Paul says, we rejoice in the promise of his presence. Now, that really just comes at the end of that verse when Paul simply sums up everything he's been saying by adding, and so we will always be with the Lord. This probably isn't part of the new revelation. This is probably something they already knew, and I'm sure Paul had taught them before. But for some reason, they obviously were thinking that some of those who died would not make it into the presence of the Lord. And he wants to punctuate and, and emphasize this and give them the assurance that because of the resurrection of Christ, when he appears that every one of us will be with him and we will be with him forever. We will always be in his presence. As I said, he will snatch us away in his own timing, for his own purpose, and for our great blessing. And then finally, in verse 18, we face the loss of loved ones differently than the world because... He says, we receive encouragement, or we ought to receive encouragement from the people of Christ. This is the command he gives us. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is why the whole thing was given. Not just for your personal Bible study, and not even you know, for your individual curiosity. But these are words of ministry. This is the command of Paul. We are to encourage one another as we minister to those who face death and especially as we minister to those who's lost loved ones, we are mandated to encourage them with these words. Now, that doesn't mean that when someone loses a loved one, you charge over there, bust through the door and start expounding this passage to them. That isn't necessarily the most comforting thing at that particular moment. But what Paul's talking about is that in those appropriate ways, in those gentle and loving ways, in timely ways, that as we minister to those who've lost loved ones, those who face death even themselves, that we point them to the resurrection of Christ and the guarantee based on that of their own resurrection and the fact that they will always be with the Lord.
That's true for every believer. For everyone who is in Christ. Which, as we said earlier, is everyone who believes in the resurrection of Christ. You've heard it, no doubt. You've probably been told about it. But it's a different question to know about something and to really believe it. Because if you really do believe the resurrection of Christ, it impacts your life. It changes who you are. You're born again, the scripture says, by that reality. And you move from a a place of corruption and a place of despair to a place of hope and a place of security, a place of salvation, a place of forgiveness. So our question to you this morning is whether or not that is your core belief. Whether you really accept that there was a man, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again because there was a Savior, Jesus Christ, who conquered sin and conquered death. And the challenge for you is to search your heart and ask whether or not that is your faith, whether or not that is your belief, whether or not the Lord is calling you right now out of your sin and out of your despair to himself with this gospel with this good news the belief the celebration the good news that Christ has rose again so that you can be saved father we're grateful for this and so thankful for the gospel that has been secured to us by this savior his resurrection is our glorious celebration it's our triumph it's our bedrock It's our message. It's our hope. And Lord, we pray that we would that we would reflect on it more and more. That we wouldn't despair as those who have no hope. But that the joy of our life would be evident every day. Filled with the richness of these truths. Knowing that whether we live or whether we die because of the resurrection of our Savior, they're secured for us forever. This reunion with Him, this meeting Him and being with Him forever. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who have only heard of these things. They continue to go through their life with the emptiness of corruption. But may they fully understand today Christ as Lord, Lord over life, victor over sin and the grave. And we pray, Father, that you would save them, call them, make them your own, one who is in Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.